Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. I am excited about this morning's message. Uh, I really have just not been able to wait all morning to get in here and get going. Uh, If you've got your Bible with you, turn to Judges chapter 6. We will get there uh, shortly, not right away. The sermon has two parts. There's a a non-sermon part and then there's a sermon part. And if you're one of those people that, you know, you're still, the jury's out on the whole Jesus thing for you and you're still trying to make up your mind or you're not sure or somebody dragged you in here this morning and or maybe they do that every Sunday and you're like you come but you're not really into it and you've already got your defenses up to here here's what I'm telling you you can lower those for a few minutes at the beginning okay because I'm going to turn all the preacher ninja stuff off and and you can just relax I just want to talk to you first for just a second and this isn't the Christian part there are no Bible verses this is just something I want you to think about I want you to consider a really, really good question this morning. The question we're going to be looking at this morning is this. What kind of person do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be? For instance, when your friends are talking about you behind your back, and they do, when you leave the office and you leave coworkers behind and you walk out the door and they start talking about you and you know they do, when you go to visit family at Christmas time and you've had the meal and you've hugged everybody and told everybody how much you love them and they wave at you as you leave through the window and you pull out of the drive and then they start talking about you because you know they do. When your kids are talking about you behind your back because you know they do, what kind of person do you want to be? Now, you and I have no control over what happens to us. We only have control over how we respond to what happens to us. Uh, Several years ago, I was trying to make a decision. I was very, I languished over the decision. I was trying to figure it out, and it was going to affect a large number of people, and uh, I was afraid of how the news would be received. I was afraid of how I would be perceived. There's a lot of moving parts, and... and, um, I I didn't talk about it to a lot of people that were close to me, but I reached out to a friend of mine who was in ministry and kind of explained to him what I was trying to work through and what I was wrestling with, and he gave me one sentence that has stuck with me ever since. I've never forgotten it. I've used it in my own life. It's it's one of the things that I kind of live by, and it's one of the things that informs my decision-making and my actions. And it is something that I have used whenever I do counseling with people. Um, I find that this little piece of advice is, is a gold nugget for people. And this is it. Are you ready? The only reaction you can control is your own. That knocked your socks off, didn't it? The only reaction you can control is your own. How you respond to what happens to you is what determines what kind of person you are. So what kind of person do you want to be? And what if you decided to be extraordinary? Now, when I say extraordinary, I don't mean that you're extraordinary at something. You know, you're all talented people, and I'm sure there's something that you can do that no one else can do. You know, I don't know what that might be. It might be something totally meaningless. Um, I'm tempted to say some things out loud, but I'm afraid I'll embarrass myself, but Um, some other things you might do might be really meaningful. Like you might be really good with accounting or you might be really good with landscaping or, um, you know, construction or something like that, some skills that I don't have. And so 
You might be really good at that, and you would do your thing, and I would stand back and go, wow, that's, that's really cool. You might be really extraordinary at something, but that's not the same as being an extraordinary person, because I've known some people that were really extraordinary at something, and they knew they were extraordinary at it, and that complicated the problem, because that made them not such an extraordinary person, and it made them someone that I didn't want to be around, or no one else wanted to be around. So what if you and I decided that we were going to be extraordinary people? You're going to be an extraordinary employee. You're going to be an extraordinary boss, an extraordinary wife or husband or son or daughter. You're going to be an extraordinary friend. You're just, that you were just going to be an extraordinary person. What if you decided that whatever roles you have in this life you're going to execute those and you're going to do those in an extraordinary way. You could do that. What if for a week, not your whole life because that's way too big to think about that, I'm not talking about that, but just for a week, every time you made a decision, every time you were tempted, every time you got your credit card or your checkbook out and you were getting ready to make a purchase, purchase every time you were asked to do something, every, you know, or your parents asked you to do something that you thought was stupid, um, every time your boss gave you an opportunity to do something, what if every single time you were asked, and at every single juncture, you asked yourself this question, what would an extraordinary person do? It's a very challenging question, especially when it comes to parenting. There are times when you're trying to parent your kids, at least for me, and I'm thinking, you know, what would an extraordinary father do? And it dawns on me that the thing I was gonna, about to do is not something that the extraordinary father would do. And, you know, at that moment, I had the opportunity to be extraordinary as a parent. And do you know how my kids have responded in moments when I have caught myself and not done what I wanted to do, which was, you know, kind of that? That's not extraordinary, is it? Um, but I did what the extraordinary parent would do. Do you know, what my, you know how my kids responded to that? They didn't even notice. They're, they're, they weren't even paying attention. You know, they would basically say, duh, dad, that's how all parents are supposed to be. You know, you're, you're just supposed to be like everybody else. You know, that, they, they wouldn't say that was extraordinary. Now, here's the point. Just imagine for a week, what if you asked this question at every juncture for a week? What would an extraordinary person do? You could do that. We'll put a phrase on the board. You know what that means? Anybody know what that means? You only live once. You only live once. Most of us think that we're going to live our life one time. So, you know, if you're only going to live your life one time, why not be extraordinary? But if you're somebody who thinks that you're going to have more than one go at this, and there are some people who do believe that, um, then this becomes even more important because they, you know, they don't know what they're going to be when they come back. So um, I don't really know how incarnation works. That's not my worldview. But if you think that you get to live your life more than one time, then you really ought to be extraordinary because you don't want to come back as a lab rat, right? I mean, you don't want to come back as a lizard or something. I don't know, a snake or a cat. That'd be horrible. Now, you may be tempted to think, 
okay, this guy's just, he's just doing preacher stuff, and, and, you know, I don't trust him, and you're thinking, you know, that's silly and dumb, and that's just a bunch of hype, and, you know, but just think about it this way for just a minute. What if your son or daughter, or your best friend, or your boss, or a handful of your employees are in the room this morning, and they're hearing the message that I'm about to preach this morning, and you ran into them after the service today, would you walk up to somebody who works for you and would you say, hey, you know that thing where he was talking about being extraordinary? Don't do that. Would you walk out of here with your teenager after hearing a message on being extraordinary and would you get in the car and say, now I know he just spent a, a fair amount of time talking about being extraordinary, but I'm just here to tell you, you don't have to worry about that. I'm not, I, don't, I don't want you to be extraordinary. You know, would you look at your spouse after a message like this and go, honey, I know what Brett said. Don't be extraordinary. I mean, let's not get carried away. Um, don't go get an extraordinary on me. See, wouldn't it be amazing if everybody you interacted with, if everyone you worked with or for waited, you know, what, what, if, what if for a week everybody that you interacted with decided, this week, every time I make a decision, I'm going to ask myself this one question. The question is, what would an extraordinary person do? Just think about what would happen in your world if everybody in your world was asking that question at every juncture. I mean, can we not all agree that the world would be a much better place if we were out to be extraordinary in the decisions that we make? Imagine that. You, you can do that. You can try that. You only live once, so make it extraordinary. Okay, so that's the pre-sermon part. This is where, so like if you got dragged in here, this is where you can kind of reach up and just turn everything off and you can go to sleep, I guess. But um, So here's where the sermon begins, okay? Here, here's, this is the sermon. If you're a Christian and you're somebody who takes Jesus seriously and the teachings of Jesus seriously, then you have got to live an extraordinary life. And you've got to ask the question, what would an extraordinary person do? And here's why. Because if you're a Christian, you believe that God is a personal God. You believe that God has a plan for your life specifically and that God knows your name. Those are some things that you believe if you're a Christian. And you believe that he loved you so much that he sent his son into the world to pay for your sin. You believe that God is linear. That God started something and that God is going to finish something and that history is actually going somewhere. If you're a Christian, you believe that all things have been created and ultimately um, everything that happens happens for the glory of God and that you have been invited to participate in one way or another. You believe that every single day matters, that you matter, that every second matters, that opportunities matter. And here's something else that you believe. You believe that every person that you have ever come face to face with was created in the image of God and deserves to be treated as someone who was made in the image of God. So if you're a Christian, you don't really have an option. We ought to wake up every day and say, okay, I know what I would normally do. I know how I would normally respond. I know what I would normally do as a parent. I know how I would normally handle my money. I know how I would normally respond to temptation. But what would an extraordinary version of me do? What would I embrace if I remember that God is God and I have been invited into the story of God to honor him with my life and with my body and with my time? 
See, if you're a Christian, you've got to do this because of what you already believe. Now, that tension that we just created, because some of you are sitting there and saying, oh my goodness, I don't know if I believe all those things. I mean, what, what did he say again? The tension that you feel of, I'm not extraordinary as I need to be to honor God the way I should, that tension is kind of the same kind of tension that we find in the book of Judges as we study it. Israel was to be so different. You know, God was going to bless the nation of Israel so much that all of the other surrounding nations would look on Israel and they would basically say, dude, you know, who's your God? We want your God to be our God because your God can beat our God any day. I mean, your crops are growing, ours are dying. You know, you, you guys keep winning, we keep losing. You guys are so blessed. What is up? What's going on with your God? We want to know who your God is. And the nation of Israel was supposed to say, our God is the one true God. So the nation of Israel was to reflect the glory of God. That, and to use a Bible term, um, Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. That's a phrase that the Bible uses. So those of us who aren't Jewish, we're all Gentiles. We were supposed to go, man, they've got it going on. Let's go get on board with that God because he's the one that really knows what's up and he's the true God and, and people that follow him seem to be doing better. And Israel had a destiny. God was involved and his spirit inhabited this nation. But when they got into the promised land, they did exactly what many of us would do. Instead of looking up, they started looking around and they said, I want to do some of that and I want some of that and hey, let's go do some of that. And that looks fun. And God's saying, no, no, no. If you do that, you're going to dilute who I am and what I'm trying to do. You're going to dilute your influence. You're going to pollute yourselves in a way that I don't want you to do. And the nation of Israel said, we want to be like them. So they started to build idols and they started worshiping Canaanite gods and pagan gods. And every time they would disobey God, God would discipline them. And we've been looking at this cycle every week. The nation of Israel in the book of Judges keeps going through this cycle. There was disobedience and then there was disaster and then there was deliverance. There was disobedience and there was disaster and there was deliverance. You know, they would disobey, it would lead to disaster because it always, sin always leads us to disaster and then they would cry out to God and they would say, oh God, we'll never do that again. And then God would bless them and deliver them and then they would go right back to disobeying. This happened over and over again in the book of Judges. Last week we looked at the life of Samson, not a great story, but has some great takeaway. This week we're going to look at the story of Gideon. Gideon was actually a good judge, and I want to tell you his story because it's an important story. Gideon, like some of us, believed in God, but became an ordinary person. And he began to believe about himself and to believe about this world, what he told himself and what the world told him about himself. And this is a fascinating story. God shows up and kind of shakes Gideon a little bit, and he basically says, what are you doing? How did you become so ordinary? And how is it that you have forgotten your destiny? How could you forget the Spirit of God rests on this land and rests on you and rests on your people? And he basically says, wake up. I want you to start acting like a Gideon who believes that he can do extraordinary things. Now, I want to talk about this this morning. This, you know, not, I don't want this to be like positive mental thinking. and It's, it's not something so you can reach your potential but, but 
the God of creation rests on you. And that's basically what this angel is going to say to Gideon. Gideon, God's spirit rests on you. That makes you different. That makes you extraordinary. That makes you someone to be reckoned with. So here's how the story goes, and, and I'm going to read you a little bit of context, and then we're going to jump right in, and we're going to be in, the, in this chapter for a lot. So it's Judges chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hand, hands of the Midians. Now the, Midianite, uh, the Midianites, the Midianites were a, a distant cousin, a very distant cousin of Israel, and they had a feud going on for many years, and at this particular time in history, Uh, The Midianites had the upper hand on the Israelites. Verse 2, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. So the people of Israel couldn't even live in their own cities. They basically had been run out of all the towns, and they were just kind of finding burrows and little holes and caves and places like that, clefts in the side of a rock to, to live in. The Midians had basically invaded all of the major cities and run the Israelites out. They'd fled to the hills. Verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. In fact, it says, they camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle, not even the donkeys. So there's nothing for the Israelites. The Midianites are just, they're, they're running roughshod over them. Skip down to verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And I would just remind you of that cycle. Disobedience, disaster, and deliverance. Disobedience, disaster, and deliverance. Disobedience, we're not going to do what you want us to do, God. Disaster, oh no, we didn't do what God told us to do. And now, who knew, we've got a disaster on our hands. Oh God, and then God delivers. So they disobey, for so, and there's seven years where God lets the Midianites kind of trample all over them, and they finally throw away their pagan Midianite gods. They were actually work, worshiping the same God as the Midianites. And one of the principles that I hope that you're taking away from this series is a very simple thing, and if you've got your Bible open with a pen handy, you might just write this little principle down somewhere. You copy something, and then you're captured by it. When you copy something, you are captured by it. If you want a great Uh, golf swing then you go copy a golf master and you copy that swing and pretty soon your muscles start doing that swing over and over again you are mastered by the swing if you just copy the same thing over and over when you copy something you're mastered by it so finally after seven years of famine and being impoverished and everything being taken away from them they'd come back to god and they say god we've basically broken your will and now we need you to bail us out It's kind of like that conversation that we've been talking about that you have with your dad. Hello, dad, I did exactly what you told me not to do, and now I'm at the police station, and what you said would happen actually happened, and now I need you to come down here and get me out because I did exactly what you said not to do, and what you said would happen if I did, that's exactly what happened. Could you please come help me? So the whole nation of Israel is kind of basically on the phone with God saying, we promise if you come down here, we'll never do this again. Right, guys? We'll never do this again. We all promise. We need you to bail us out because it's not going well for us. That was the nation of Israel. And they went through this over and over again. And, and if you don't hear anything else I say, or you check out early, or, you know, here's something cool. When the nation rebelled against God, and when the nation repented and turned back 
to God, guess what God did? God would turn back to the nation. In fact, that is what God does with all of us because God is a God of mercy. He is so merciful, he does not shield us from the consequences of our own dumb decisions because by not shielding us from the consequences of our dumb decisions, we face the full-on consequences of those dumb decisions in hopes that we will never do those things again and God will invade us and he will forgive us and restore us to him. That's what God does. And you say, well, Brett, how many times will God do that? And the answer is, as many times as necessary. Brett, how many rounds of that do I get? As many rounds as it takes before you finally realize this is not working. You know, I keep doing my own thing. I keep going my own way. It's not working. And finally, one day you wake up and go, you know, when God tells me not to do something, I've discovered there's a really good reason. There's, there's disaster on the other side of it. Every time I do it, there's disaster on the other side. This time I'm tempted to want to go against God I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stay here. Who knows what disasters you have avoided in the times that you actually listened to the Spirit of God in your life? Who knows what you, could have, what you have avoided just in those times that you, you, you started to do something and you heard God say, eh, eh, don't do that. I love you. I love you, and if you do that, something really bad could happen. Let's just not do that. And you didn't, and you'll never know. He loves you too much to not let you sometimes face the full-on consequences of your decisions. The same way as a parent, there have been times that you have allowed your kids to face the consequences of their choices so that they would learn a lesson. So the nation of Israel is like, well, we've had it. We repent. Would you do something, please? And that is when we meet Gideon. This is such a great story. I can't wait to share this with you. Judges chapter 6, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat. And this is interesting. He was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, you have to understand that when you threshed wheat, what you were supposed to do is you were supposed to get out in the open where there was a breeze. You know, you, you needed a breeze to thresh wheat. And so what you would do is you, you would have this wheat, you would throw it up in the air. You had this like basket or this little tray kind of thing. You would toss it up in the air. And as the wheat would go up, the wind was supposed to blow and it would blow the chaff away from the wheat so that the, the elements kind of helped you do the job. So gravity's pulling the, the grain back down but the wind is carrying the lighter uh, chaff off and away from the wheat. And so when you would throw it up and come down and catch it, then you had your wheat and you had separated the wheat and the chaff. And so this required that you be up. This required that you be at an elevation, that you be in a, probably you're going to be pretty visible. If you were threshing wheat, the other people were going to see you threshing wheat. To do this right, you needed to be outside where you could experience the elements well. Well, they're so afraid of the Midianites, and, and Gideon is so afraid, along with the other Israelites, they're trying to preserve what little bit they had. So <laughs> Gideon is in a wine press, kind of hunkered down, trying to thresh wheat, which means he, he's either down in a hole, or he's down in a barn, or he's down in a valley where he cannot be seen, and he cannot take full advantage of the wind that's blowing through. So he's in the wrong place because he's scared to death, but the Midianites 
He's afraid the Midianites are going to see what he's doing and come and take his wheat away from him. (laughs) So I want you to really understand what Gideon's doing and what his mindset is before we go on in in the scriptures because You've got to have the the mental image in your head of he's hunkered down, looking around, scared to death, throwing up his wheat every now and then, trying to make sure nobody sees what he's doing, lest somebody come steal his wheat. Now, having that context, look at verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon's like, I don't know who you're talking to. <laughs> okay, I'm hiding. I, I'm, I'm hiding because I don't want the Midianites to see what I'm doing. I don't have anything. Everybody from this era knows you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. It's totally ridiculous what I'm doing. You need to be up where you can be seen. You need to be in the wind. I'm down here. I'm hiding. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Really? Now, before we continue, this is, this is important for you. Because some of you, this is where you are. You have lost sight of who you are. You've lost sight of what God wants to do in your life. You, you've forgotten your childhood. You've forgotten the last day at camp when you stood up and said, I'm going to live my life for the Lord and I'm going to do what he says and I'm going to be fearless and all those things that kind of went along with it. You've forgotten all the answered prayer. You've forgotten how good God has been to you time and time again. You have gotten yourself in a place where you have become like everybody else around you. And there's a battle going on in your heart. (laughs) And God shows up today and he looks into your life and he says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And you think, dude, you don't even know where I was last night. If you've been paying any attention to my life, do you know how long it's been since I prayed, Brett? You know how long it's been since I went to church? You know how long it's been since I opened up my Bible? Do you know how far away I've drifted? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And so Gideon says what we might say, verse six, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 13, Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Now this is great because you have asked this question. I've asked this question. God, if you're good, then why is there bad? God, if you're for me, then why is the world against me? Why do I still not have a job? Why am I single? Why don't I have kids? Why, God? Why? 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 See, here's the great news. If you have ever asked that question or any version of that question, Gideon asked that question 3,300 years ago. And God is not offended by the question. I I tell people that all the time. It It is often the question that leads us back into a relationship with God. Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? God, my whole life I've been hearing about how you've done all these great things for all these other people. How you chose Abraham and you were going to bless the 
life in the, the legacy of Abraham and how he, we we're going to make a great nation out of him. And then there's Egypt, and God led the children of, out of Egypt. And we've all heard, God, about how great you were in Egypt. And God delivered the nation. But why isn't he delivering us from the Amalekites? And why doesn't he do more for me? Why doesn't he do for me what he did for those people a long time ago? But now, he says, the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So I'm not a mighty warrior. And God isn't a mighty God, and it's not working out, and it's not like it used to be, and I'm not sure that I believe any of that anyway. I think it's just a bunch of fables. That might have been what Gideon was thinking. The Lord, the Lord turned to him and said, <laughs> go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. And Gideon says, okay, God, did you just not hear anything I just said? God, I'm not a mighty warrior, okay? I'm not. I mean, we've already covered that. God, God hasn't, you haven't done anything for us lately. Nothing's going on, and you want me to go and deliver the nation of Israel from the hand of Midian? Are you kidding me? How's that going to work? What's, what's that going to look like? How's that going to happen? And why are you bothering me? And then God says, am I not sending you? Am I not sending you? See, it's right here that if you were doing a movie of this, this is what you'd hear. You know, I mean, the whole thing. Because it's at this point, this should be the part where Gideon starts throwing off his robes, you know, and he starts yoking up, and he stiffens his back, and he gets the eye of the tiger. The whole thing starts happening right here in this moment. This is what Gideon ought to be doing, but see, this is the thing. This is history. This isn't a fable. This isn't some story I'm making up. This is history. Verse 15, pardon me, my Lord. See, he's really polite. Pardon me, my Lord. Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Remember that Israel is split up into 12 tribes. Manasseh is one of the 12 tribes. He says, I'm not even from a famous tribe. I mean, people don't really know much about my tribe. I'm from the weakest clan in my tribe, and I am the least in my family. Translated, hey, I went to junior college, okay? And I didn't even do all that well in junior college. And I don't have any money, and I'm barely middle class, and I don't know anybody, and nobody's ever handed me a microphone. I've never been on a stage. I don't have much. I don't have a girlfriend. I don't have much promise. I just figured out Twitter. I've been on Facebook for a week. I got four friends, okay, four friends. So I'm like a nobody. And you came down here bothering me, telling me mighty warrior, and I'm supposed to go out and save an entire nation. I'm not from a famous tribe. I'm last. My clan is last in the tribe, and my family's last in the clan. Mighty warrior? Then 
Then the Lord answered, oh, then never mind, I must be at the wrong house. Now, it doesn't say that. Okay, in case you've got your Bible open and you're going, what? What translation have you got? What comes next is so important, I wanted to get your attention before we look at it. This is really important. This is why you should read your Bible so you can say, eh, no, that's not in there. See, you should read your Bible. Here's where I, as a pastor, just wish that God would do a miracle for us. And one by one, starting with me, one by one, if just for 30 seconds, if, if God would just open our eyes so that we could see us the way God sees us. Because if we could see us the way God sees us, our lives would be completely different. Gideon, do you feel like a mighty warrior? No. Well, you are. I'm not. Yeah, you are. No, I'm not. Yes, Gideon, you are. So Gideon, who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe your estimation of you, or are you going to believe God's estimation of you? And Gideon's going, trick question. I don't know. I don't know. Let me ask you this. Are you going to believe your estimation of you, or are you going to believe God's estimation of you? And let me tell you how you view you. You view you based on how everybody else views you. You view you based on what you've been told by other people about you. They're wrong. What if the people that you've been hanging around with are the wrong people? What if you've been around normal people for too long and you've been around average people for too long and you've begun to, th- begun to think that you're normal and you're average? And what if God sees you differently? And what if you've spent your whole life just kind of going along with what everybody else is saying and living the way everybody else lives and dating the way everybody else dates and spending money the way everybody else spends money and and dreaming as little as everybody else dreams? What if you're doing what everybody else does and you're missing a much bigger picture? What if God sees you differently? God, if you, you know, the prayer would be, God, if you just open our eyes for 30 seconds so that we could see ourselves the way you see us, I think it would change everything. I know it would change me. Because whenever I hear somebody tell their story about life change, you know, they'll, I'll have a conversation with them or I get, you know, people send me letters and I get emails a lot and, and you know, they'll kind of tell me their story. And, and part of life change is, is a moment or a period of time where their eyes kind of come open and it's like, oh, man, God, you know my name. My creator loves me and knows me personally. He didn't just send Jesus to die for a whole bunch of people and their sin. He sent Jesus to die specifically for me and my sin too. Like it was personal. Like, like God, you have a plan for me? God, you mean you have a plan for my time, my relationships, my money, my intimacy? You're interested in all that? That there's an opportunity for me to be extraordinary, not at something, but that I would be an extraordinary 
person that would make a difference in the world, make a difference in my community, in my church, in the school, at work. Oh. See, there's a verse in the New Testament that basically says, in the end, we will see ourselves as we really are. We're going to see ourselves the way God sees us. St. Augustine said that there won't be any sin in heaven, and he says the reason that there won't be is not that we can't sin, it'll be that we can see so clearly that we will choose not to sin. See, that's how powerful that oh moment is when you realize, oh, God, I mean, you're that in tune with what's going on in my world. You care that much about me? I matter to you like that? And this is the moment that Gideon is having with the Lord. The angel of the Lord said, come on. Come on, Gideon. See, as a parent, I have thought this many times about my own kids. And I, I, I was a youth pastor for years. And, and um, I, I remember thinking this about the kids in youth group. You know, I, would, I just had some great kids in youth group. And I could see such potential. I could see, I could, you know, the, the, there were kids that would come through and they had, they had such potential. They had influence with their peers. They, they, they were intelligent. They, they got a lot of what I was trying to teach them about the Lord. They, they were getting it, but they just, they didn't see themselves the way I saw them. They didn't see how powerful and strong and mighty and what a difference they could make in their school. And I remember just praying, God, help them to see what you see in them because they could change the world. They would be so amazing if they would just wake up and realize, I've, I've thought that with my own kids. I've just thought, oh, good Lord, if you could just see the potential I see in you. God's saying, come on, I want, I want you to see, if you could see the way I see you, you would step out of here and you would do something significant in the world. Verse 16, the Lord answered, Gideon, I will be with you. The question, Gideon, the question, mom, the question, dad, the question, college student or high school student or boss or brother or sister, the question is, will you be with me? Because God says, I'm going to be with you. But God's asking, will you be with me? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's undebated that I'm going to be with you, but, but are you going to be with me? See, that, that's, that's the question. In fact, I've been with the nation all this 300 plus years, you know, Gideon, I've been with them all along on this incredible journey of their ingratitude and their blindness. I've been with you guys the whole time. Gideon, I'm willing to do something extraordinary in you and through you. The question is, Gideon, are you with me? And here's why this series is so important. Because you have the freedom to do what you want to do, when you want to do it, with whom you want to do it. You can live the rest of your life doing what you think is right in your own eyes. You can go do that. And, and I, you know, there's a bunch of people who don't want me to say the next thing I'm going to say because we want to use religion to control behavior. But I'm just going to tell you, you can go do what you want to do, when you want to do it, with whom you want to do it, and you can still be saved. Oh, Brett, don't tell them that. Don't tell them that, because then they'll go do all that stuff. Then what are we going to do? Then their life is going to blow up. Then their life will blow up. And at some point, God's going to go, 
I'm just waiting for you to figure out that when I tell you that's going to hurt you, that I'm not lying to you, that I'm telling you the truth. And I love you, and you can go do that, and I'm still going to love you, and I'm going to be right here, but I'm, I love you enough to let you run full on into the full consequences of your behavior. So you go do what you want to do when you want to do it with whom you want to do it. You go do that. And you go be like everybody else. But I'm telling you, there's going to come a point, God says, when you're going to wish you hadn't done that. And you're going to cry out to me. And when you cry out to me, guess what? I'll be there. The question is, will you be with me? And so here's the defining moment in Gideon's life. Gideon, I'm not going to give you some extraordinary gift. I'm not going to send you through a, you know, here's how to defeat the nation of Midian 101 class. I'm not going to do that for you, Gideon. I'm asking you to believe when I tell you that God is with you. Gideon, would you simply live like a man who is confident that God is with you? That's all I'm asking. Would you just live your life like someone who knows God is with you? And cross lane, that, that is what God is asking you, and that's what God's asking me. Are you, would you just live your life, and would you believe that he is with you? And simply live your life and make every single decision as a man or a woman who believes that God is with you and is for you and is in you. Well, Brett, I'm not Gideon. And I'm not in the Bible. And I'm not a warrior. And I think you're just trying to make me feel better about myself. And here's why this is so incredible and so relevant for you and me. Because 1,300 years after this story, another Jewish man would write to the Christians in Rome. Now, you've got to understand that being a Christian in Rome was dangerous. Rome was not a safe place for Christians because of a man named Nero who hated Christians so much that he was known to dip them in tar and light them on fire and hang them in his gardens at night so that he could watch night sports. That's what he did to Christians. This guy hated Christians. Nero caused the death of Peter and Paul. The Romans and the Roman authorities hated Christians because they worshiped Jesus. They did not worship Caesar. So to this group of persecuted Christians who things are not going their way, and it's a very dangerous place to be, Paul wrote this, and to all of us, he says, Romans 8, verse 31, the second part, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's the same thing that God said to Gideon. Gideon, I I know you don't think of yourself as a warrior. I know you think you just went to junior college and you didn't even graduate. You didn't do that well. I know things aren't going well for you, and I know you're hiding. I know the last thing you think about yourself is that you're a mighty warrior. I know that, Gideon. I know that about you. But I just want you to step into the way I see you and out of the way that you've been looking at yourself because God is with you, God is in you, and God is for you. And 1,300 years later, the Apostle Paul says to all of us, the Holy Spirit is in you, the Holy Spirit is for you, and God is with you. So why wouldn't you wake up every single day of your life and ask the question, what is an extraordinary person who is me to do when they know that they have that kind of relationship with God? 
And it's as if Paul is writing this and he's thinking, oh, they're not going to believe that God's for them and they're going to go, well, how do I know God's for me when I live in Rome? And Nero's lighting us up and he's feeding us to animals and things are bad all over. How do I know God's for me? And they're like Gideon saying, how can you say God's for us? I haven't seen a miracle in Egypt in ages. God, you haven't shown up. You haven't said anything. Things are bad. The Midianites are everywhere. How do we know? How do you know? How do you know it's just not me up here with a microphone trying to convince you of something? How do you know it's just not a bunch of public speaking? Paul knew you'd ask the question. Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now catch this. He, that is God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He says, you know how you can wake up every single day and know that God is for you? It isn't by looking around at the Midianites. It's not by looking around at your job, and it's not by looking around at your culture. You can wake up every day knowing that God knows your name, that he loves you, he is for you, and he is with you. Because 2,000 years ago, God allowed his son to pay the price for you. That's how you know how valuable you are. Do you know how you find the value of something? Value 101. you know how you do it? The value of a thing is the price it will bring. You want to know how valuable something is? Put it on eBay. Find out what somebody will pay for it. You want to know how valuable something is? Price it and then keep dropping the price until somebody buys it. That's what it's worth. Then you'll know the value of it. The value of a thing is the price it will bring. And Paul says to all of us, you are so valuable as a person and as an individual, the image of God is on you, the spirit of God is in you, and God has breathed life into you. You are so valuable to God that he equated you with the price of his son. Now why wouldn't you wake up every day of your life and see yourself with that kind of value? Mighty warrior, God would say, I got something for you. Quit looking around. I know, the, I know my nation of Israel hasn't done a great job. I know things haven't gone great for them. I know what tribe you're in. I know all of that. I know that's how you see you. But here's how I see you. I'm for you. I'm with you. I'm in you. Now, what are you going to do and how are you going to respond? The story of Gideon ends like this. He's scared to death, <clears throat> but he's going to deliver his people from Midian. So here's what he does. One night he sneaks in. You need to go read this story. He sneaks in and he destroys one idol and then he comes back. He's like, ooh, I knocked down one of their idols. I mean, it's a baby step, but it's a step. He takes a baby step. This guy's scared to death. He believes God's with him and for him. He stepped into what God had for him because he decided to believe God was with him. And so he goes and he knocks down one idol and he comes back and he's like, that was exciting. Stephen Furtick is a preacher down in Charlotte, North Carolina. He is a, he's a mixture of Billy Graham and um, trying to think of a black preacher. It's, it's like Billy Graham got crossed with a black preacher. Can you imagine hearing that every Sunday? I think it personally would be awesome, but it's dangerous. He, this is what he says. It's dangerous to think more highly of yourself than you ought. It's equally as dangerous to think less of yourself than God does. 
That's true. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. But it is a dangerous thing for you to not see yourself the way God sees you and to think of yourself the way God thinks of you. I'm going to close. Here's what I'm going to say to close. This is not a message about trying to challenge you to be good. This is a message about challenging you to be extraordinary. You owe it to yourself to wake up every day and ask the question, what would an extraordinary person do? What would an extraordinary you do? And if you're a Christian, come on. What would you do if you were confident that God was with you and for you and in you? That's the life you've been called to. Samson threw everything away because he could not keep his eyes off the world around him. Gideon stepped into it. He stepped into what God said about him, and God used him in a mighty way. As the pastor of this church, I've, I, I find myself doing this once in a while, just, and this sermon has kind of reawakened that in me, just this prayer that I want to pray over us. God, would you, just, would you just wake us up and help us to see what you could do with us? So if I could just get you to bow your head, I'm going to pray over you and then we'll be done. God, this morning we've heard this message about Gideon and here's this guy that's hiding and he thinks nobody's watching and nobody cares and he's just trying to eke out a living and in his mind there's nothing ordinary about him. And Lord, that, that, that we probably all in the room think some version of that about ourselves. Because we've been listening to everybody else and we've been watching television and we've been, you know, we, we, we look at singers and movie stars and athletes and we think, well, I'm not, you know, I, I can't do that. So I'm not extraordinary. And God, so often what we find out is that that guy might be extraordinary at playing football, but he's a lousy person. That girl might be an extraordinary singer or guitar player or actress, but she's, nobody would want to hang out with her. But God, what would it look like if I saw myself the way you see me, what courage would I have? What passion would you birth in me? And how might I make a difference for the kingdom of God, not just in my family, but in my church and in my community and maybe in the world? All because I listen to your voice and not my voice and not the voice of the people around me. So God, I beg you, help us to have our eyes open just long enough to see ourselves the way you see us. And then tell the world to watch out. God, we love you. We worship you in this moment. We tell you how awesome you are. It's in the precious name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.